Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this episode, I interview a neuroscientist and researcher I have long admired and followed, Dr. Rudolf Tanzi, on what we should do and eat to keep our brains young and healthy, simple things we can do to boost healthy genetic activity, how to control our genetic expression, and more. We also discuss the five most widespread myths about the brain that limit your potential and how to overcome common challenges such as memory loss, depression, anxiety, and obesity. Dr. Rudolf Tanzi is the Vice Chair of Neurology, Director of the Genetics and Aging Research Unit, and co-director of the McCann's Center for Brain Health at Massachusetts General Hospital and serves at the Joseph P. and Rose F. Kennedy Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. In his research achievements, Dr. Tanzi served on the team that was the first to find a disease gene, Huntington's disease, using human genetic markers, helping to launch the field of neurogenetics. Dr. Tanzi then went on to co-discover all three early-onset familial Alzheimer's disease genes. He has identified several other Alzheimer's disease genes as a leader in the Alzheimer's Genome Project supported by the Cure Alzheimer's Fund. Dr. Tanzi also discovered the Wilson's disease gene and several other neurological disease genes. Dr. Tanzi has published over 500 research papers and has received the highest awards in his field, including the Metropolitan Life Foundation Award, Ronald Reagan Award, Silver Innovator Award, and the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award the top national award for invention and innovation. He serves on dozens of editorial boards and scientific advisory boards and was named to Time Magazine's list of Time 100 Most Influential People in the World. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now, on to today's interview. Dr. Tanzi, I'm absolutely honored, thrilled, and enthralled that you are doing this interview with me today. I'm one of your biggest fans, and not only are you a leading expert in Alzheimer's and have made major breakthroughs, you're a professor at Harvard, and you have such a list of accolades, it's outstanding. But I think what I love most about you is the fact that you've combined science and spirituality, and you make a statement that I've been saying for years, that, I've, that I have, challenged, have been challenged on so often. I mean, I heard you say that just recently in something I was listening to you of yours, I thought, this is a 
amazing. You say that science and spirituality are the same thing. And I thought, wow, finally there's someone else who's also saying that because I say that all the time and I've been so challenged on that. So that besides everything else that you do, that's phenomenal. That just really excited me. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. It's my pleasure. You're very welcome. And it's, it's, it's great to uh, be able to meet you virtually. <laughs> it is. It's so nice. I know these days we're all meeting virtually. So, <laughs> well, can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? That's, you know, that's not in your bio. You know, what motivates you? What keeps you doing what you do? What motivates me in music is similar to what motivates me in science, which is the creative process. I'm very excited by doing new things, finding new things, whether it's creating new music or discovering new things in science. I think that what drives me is to not be derivative. Like when I train folks doing research, I say, emphasize the search and research, not the read. And, you know, you're on this planet, you got so much time, make sure you do something new that's really yours. Make sure it's going to serve and help people and make sure it's going to last the test of time. Don't do, don't, you know, when you do things, just ask yourself, is it, is, whether it's a musical piece or whether it's a research study, is it going to matter 50 years from now or 100 years from now? I think if you can make it out to 50 or 100 years, you did really well. Because, you know, things change. Things change all the time. I love how you always talk about, just based on what you said, how you talk about finding threads of truth and how we need to spend more time thinking and digging deep to understand things before we just explain and talk. And when we do talk, we should be testing our hypotheses to find those threads of truth. I mean, that's just very, very powerful and very wise in this current climate, especially with people just shoot their mouths off without thinking deeply. And I love how you train your students in that philosophy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, see, so when you're doing science, you have to realize that you are trying to come up with answers about nature, about the unknown, about the world. And here we are, you know, we're, we're, one of, we're the most advanced species we believe. Yeah. We like to believe on this planet. <laughs> we have 100 billion neurons or nerve cells in our brain making trillions, tens of trillions, in some cases hundreds of trillions, maybe even a quadrillion in some people, connections called synapses. And that sounds really impressive, but it's still a limited system. And you can only understand so much. You can only explain so much less, right? Generally, we understand more than we can explain. So I explain to people that, or my students, that when you're testing a new scientific hypothesis, the odds are very high, no matter how excited you are about it, that it's wrong, or at, the, or, or at least not completely right. So. The way you get to the truth in science is you don't design experiments setting out to prove what you think, which most people think. I'm going mm-hmm. to let's see, how can I prove this? Your, your goal has to be to disprove it. Your goal has to be to take your best idea and go into the lab and do all the necessary controls, the positive controls, the negative controls to disprove your idea. You have to pretend that it's your life mission to show this idea is wrong. And you give it your best shot. And then whatever holds up is a little thread of truth. And I tell people, if you can, you know, get enough threads of truth to make one little swatch of fabric, it's still going to matter 50 years or 100 years or 20 years from now. You did more than most people who just want to go in there and set the world on fire and say, I want to prove this and prove that. And just make outlandish claims and do experiments that are meant to convince themselves of what they already believe before they set out to do the experiments. 
That's the wrong way to science. I love that. I love that. And I think just hearing what you're saying, it's, I think it's if you, you study both microbiology and, and you're a history major, and it sounds like you've really woven that together in your in the way you do do research. So, I mean, how did that, did that do you think that history has contributed to that kind of way of thinking? Because you approach science quite differently, and I love it. I love it. I think it's the correct way of doing things because it makes people think deeply. Yeah, I, I think as an undergrad, getting a science major, a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology, but at the same time, I was getting a Bachelor of Arts in History. And I was also minoring in music at this time because I, wow. I was up at University of Rochester and Eastman School of Music is there. So as a musician, I took advantage of taking courses there too. Mm. But I think, in, you know, my history bachelor's was on the history of science. And so mm. I learned about things like we've talked about paradigm shifts mm-hmm. and how new paradigms and concepts are established. And I read about, you know, about how people didn't believe Lamarck, who said, mm-hmm. you know, it was, who, you had Darwin who talked about evolution. And, you know, poor, poor Lamarck believed that there was a homunculus of a little human being that started out and that, you know, over time, its genetics is, is being changed over time. And, nobody, you know, and now we, we've come to believe, oh, it's all evolution. It's all from random chance. It's all just survival of the fittest. But now we find out that because of epigenetics, this, I wrote yeah. the second book with Deepak Chopra, yeah. Supergenes, mm-hmm. epigenetics says that, you know, you're born with certain genes like clay, but you get to sculpt it. You sculpt your genes by your lifestyle, your choices, and your habits that then determine how your 23,000 genes are expressing themselves. So think of like a, a rheostat or a volume knob mm-hmm. and treble and bass, like on a, you know, a radio. And each of your genes, depending on how you're living your life, are, are being trended up or down. And, or, or, the, or one gene can make like five different proteins and you're determining which proteins it's making, which forms of each protein. So you're, you're in control. You can't control the genes that mom and dad gave you. Mm-hmm. But how you live your life, your habits, your choices you make every day, your experiences of programming your genes. And so it's a very, you know, it's, it's a very adaptable and flexible situation, just like your brain, you know, your, your neural networks are being adapted all the time. Everything's very flexible, very plastic. And, you know, I was, and when I was in college and I was studying history, microbiology, I also studied, you know, a lot of, it, a lot of philosophy and consciousness. And I was really taken with the Taoist philosophy and Taoism that says, you know, you have to be like a young breed that can bend with the wind. But if you're too stiff and rigid, the wind will break you. And mm. I think that stuck with me also is just that, that whole idea of staying centered, you know, staying inside, do, step out to do your job, then return to the center. Whenever you go out to do your job, you have to stay flexible, stay adaptable. You have to do that about in science, about your ideas, about your hypotheses, about possibilities. And you mentioned earlier on spirituality and science. Well, anything that's metaphysical or using the slang word woo-woo right now that people make fun of, yeah. as soon as you can figure out what to measure, how to measure it, and, you, and something's measurable and thus yeah. predictable, it yeah. becomes science. Exactly. So whatever right now people want to say, oh, you believe in telepathy or this or that, or you believe that you can see the future in your dreams. Well, you know, somebody has to experience that directly to believe it. Yeah. There's no science to back it up. 
But as soon as you can figure out what is the unit of measurement for telepathy or telekinesis in the future, and how can I measure it? And now we can measure it. And as soon as that's what we do in science, we figure out how to measure things. And because we can measure it, we can predict it. So anything that's wondrous, mystical, and metaphysical now is just waiting to become science as soon as it can be measured, which means you need to know what to measure and you need the technology to figure out how to measure it. So you have to keep your mind open because the spirituality and the science fiction and the mysticism of today is the science of tomorrow. Exactly. I love that. I love that because it's this deep, intense thinking that we spoke about earlier on, the deep understanding to understand things first. That means you're really going to have to dig deeply to really think and understand and go beyond what we understand, what we just look at now and recognize that that's how we move into the future. And you also make a comment about how in 500 years time, they're going to, people are going to be laughing and looking back at ourselves and saying, hey, they had since the early 1900s, we've had information about the well, 19 sort of 20 about quantum physics, but it's taken all these years for people to recognize the observer effects and collapsing the wave and you know and all these the, the, the impact that we have an ability we have to create so we're going to be looking back and that's kind of that spiritual thing that we need to as soon as you're thinking deeply and as soon as you're tapping into that wisdom and getting deep inside and really understanding things you're tapping into your spiritual nature so i agree with you it's, it's really odd that people make that separation because you can't really be a good scientist without being very spiritual in my opinion i mean that's like two sides of the same coin yeah part of what we do as scientists is we observe. And observing is best done when you are aware of being aware. Love that. And you can call that mindfulness. But mm. when I'm looking at data, I'm looking at an Excel sheet, I'm looking at you know tons and tons of values, and I'm sorting them and stratifying them and writing equations to kind of make sense of them. Yeah. I have to remember that the real me I picture sitting on a mountaintop, observing what I'm doing. I'm aware of being aware. I'm aware that I'm bringing data into my brain, that I'm calculating. I'm using my brain as a tool. I'm not identifying with my brain. That was the, the point of my first book with Deepak Chopra, yeah. Super Bird. Super which brain, is yeah. you're not your brain, you're the user of your brain. Exactly. I love that. That's fantastic statements. You're not your brain, you're the user of your brain. And you got to, and when you apply this to playing music or doing science or analyzing or whatever you're doing, as soon as you can step back and be aware and, and watch yourself and observe what you're doing in, this, in the art of observation, you bring yourself back out of the limitations of those hundred billion neurons, mm. and billions of synapses, and into that more infinite sense of self that we call the spirit or we call the soul. And most scientists don't like words like that. But to me, the fact is, my brain gave me a gift. My brain gave me the gift of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. My brain gave me the ability to look outside my window right now and see a tree and to not say I am the tree. Okay, so I look at a tree. And my eyes are receiving photons of color. There really is no color. Mm-hmm. But my, these photons hitting my eyes. And my eyes is create, my brain is creating what a tree is for me. And, it, and, you know, and, and the way an ant sees a tree, the way a bat sees a tree, the way a squirrel sees a tree, it's all different. All, all observation of the universe is species-specific. Mm-hmm. You can only interpret your world according to the sensory system you have. Mm-hmm. So we have species-specific worlds, and the closer the species is to you by DNA, the closer their world is to yours. So our world that we see is very different than a little E. coli bacteria in a yeah. dish. 
But all these universes are just as valid to each species. So I look outside and I see this tree, and, it, and now I get this image of a tree in my brain, and I know that I'm seeing a tree. And my brain is bringing me that sensate, that the sensory elements that create the tree. Now let's think about what our brain also brings us besides sensory information, like vision and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling. Our brain also brings us feelings, emotions. Our brain brings us thoughts. A lot of our thoughts are just verbal sounds regurgitated in our head. Internal dialogue, internal monologue. I highly, on a different topic, I highly advise against your thoughts being limited to words. But, mm. And your brain also is bringing you imagination, meaning that everything you see is conjuring up images, not visions, but imagination where you're conjuring up memories from the past. And every time you bring up a new a memory, it's different. We're not recorders, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we remember things different. We remember things differently all the time, depending on the circumstances, how we feel, everything. So Dan Siegel, who's a good friend, uses the term "sift." Our brain brings us sensations from our five senses. Mm-hmm. Our brain brings us imagination or images, eye, feelings, and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Now let's get back to that tree. I said I see the tree, but I don't say I am a tree, right? But now let's say my neighbor comes over. And chops down this beautiful tree in my yard. I'm going to get pretty angry. And I'm going to say, I am angry. Oh, wait, I am identifying with anger, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying my brain just brought me the feeling of anger, which I can experience as a human, mm-hmm. just like my brain brought me the image of a tree, which I can experience. I didn't identify with the tree, but the anger my brain brought me now, now the brain's bringing me anger. I identify with it. I am angry. That's an example of your brain using you. But if you're the observer and you're always sitting in that mountaintop observing and being aware of being aware as a daily lifestyle every minute, then they can chop down that tree and I can feel anger, but mm-hmm. I know my brain's doing its job. Feel anger so you can go and tell that neighbor, don't chop down my tree again, Right. But I'm not getting the negative aspect of feeling angry and the stress that comes with that and the inflammation, mm. the chronic inflammation that's now going to start hurting my cells and killing my cells and, and hurting my brain, mm. which is, you know, that was the third book we wrote, The Healing Self, about yes. how to live every, so we, the combination of super brain and super genes, how to use your brain, use your genes, don't let them use you, is how to live every day so that you heal rather than decay. By not letting, by not identifying with those things, not identifying with things. Basically, you are sitting on the mountaintop, you are always the observer. That's what quantum mm-hmm. physics taught us. We are yeah. always, always the observer. We are always aware. And we have this gift of being aware of being aware. Mm-hmm. You celebrate. You need to wake up every day and say, I'm aware of the fact that I'm aware. I'm the observer, and I'm observing myself observed. And then when you do science, new insights, because this taps into intuition. When you tap into that deep soul, that deep pool of the soul, that deep pool of the spirit, that's where intuition lies. And that's where you get where you where you suddenly transcend logic and reason and the boundaries of belief systems into new discoveries. And now you can do great science and do great music. And that's the goal. That really is the goal. Oh, brilliant. 
There are so many supplements out there that it can be very overwhelming and scary. I did my own research since that's what I do best and that's when I discovered Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food or in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can actually do more harm to your body than good. I've been using Ritual for a while now and I really love how they make me feel inside and out. Ritual also makes everything so easy and convenient. A subscription is easy to start and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. I'm looking at you and I may look calm, but I'm jumping on the inside because it's just such truth that you're speaking and I resonate with that. Now, I'm actually older than you. I was doing research back in the 80s and in the 80s when I was trained, they told me the brain can't change. So, you know, you talk about your five myths of the brain, that the brain can't be changed and the brain can't heal itself and aging the brain is irreversible. You know, your five, the five myths which I'd love to dive into. I remember talking to my professors at that stage and saying, but I'm sure this is not right and that our brain can change. And I did was working with traumatic brain injury and there was like no research, hardly any on them because they said, well, what's the point of studying someone with a brain injury when your brain can't change? Just teach them to compensate. And I remember challenging that philosophy and really diving into working with traumatic brain injury and seeing, turning the neuroplasticity, which also wasn't really spoken about much in the 80s. And it was such a time, I was, I remember professors telling me, that's a ridiculous question for you to think you can have the self-awareness to use your mind, to change your mind, to change your brain and to change your behaviors and change your life. And as you know, back in the 80s and 90s, that was really, you, you just did not talk about those things or not many people and so but then then it was accepted and now we know that this is the even though you do as a harvard scientist both you and deepak come up against the challenge of the classical physicists and the neuroscientists and neuroreductionism. I know you talk about that a lot. You've challenged them. You challenged them to quite, this neuroscientist quite very nicely when you ask them, how do you feel, for example, how do you describe that first kiss? Where's that memory? And how do you reduce, how does your brain produce that that emotion? So it's, I think, you know, what I resonate with you that we've gone from being told we ridiculous. Well, I was told I was asking ridiculous questions to seeing that actually your brain does change. It's never the same. You can direct that neuroplasticity. You can direct not the gene sequence, but how the genes are active and switching on and off. And your work has just been so powerful. And I'm glad, so pleased that you and Deepak Chief speak out about this so so strongly and challenge neuroreductionism. So that's just my little five cents to jump out there and, and, and you know, say well done because it's, it's so vital because it gives us the recognition of, as you say, wake up every morning and that gift of self-awareness, that awareness that I don't just have to be knocked around like a little boat in a sea. There's a level of empowerment that I have. So that's just very, very exciting. I did some clinical trials recently, and we can talk about that as we're going along, which kind of just, just in this mind-brain area of how mind changes brain, which is your field. But I want to ask you, in terms of you explain so beautifully how just genetics and epigenetics and Play-Doh, you have a fantastic analogy of understanding genes, epigenetics, and you use that simple analogy of Play-Doh and how it changes. Would you mind talking us through that concept of how we can change our genes and epigenetics and what that means and how we can change. It's not years and years like Darwin said, but it is something we can change now and in the, and in, on, in the next generation. So, so it is both, right? I mean, Darwin was also correct that 
there are gene mutations that take a lot of time to be, you know, to work them, their way into a species and be conserved based yes. on survival. What Dharma could not have known, so you can't blame him, was that, you know, you're born with three billion bases of DNA that's been contributed by your parents, mom and dad, and you get what you get. But every time you do something in your life and you have an experience from a baby to Ahmed as an adult making your own choices, those experiences are changing the chemistry in your body. They're changing the, the expression of, of various biochemicals, hormones, etc. that then in turn control the expression of those genes. So in, in genetics, we, we use the word expression. It means activity. Gene activity we call gene expression. So a, a, a gene can express at a high level or a low level. And even though we only have 23,000 or so genes, we make hundreds of thousands of proteins from them because they can be spliced differently. One gene can make you know, 10, 20 different types of versions of the same protein. Now, as you have experiences based on choices and, and these various chemicals being made in your body, like if you're stressed out, you make cortisol, which is bad for you. So in your brain, it's a whole different story. You've got neurotransmitters, you've got neurochemicals that are being made in response to how you feel. Are you internalizing anger? Are you, are you internalizing too much pleasure? You know, rather than enjoying it in the moment and staying detached from the identity with it. That's really the, the key. Mm-hmm. So the term is, is it one of the terms that's used, it was used by the guru who started the Kauai Hindu monastery, who I'm very friendly with. There were, Gurudeva, as they call him, he wrote the, the trilogy and in Shiva, merging with Shiva, dancing with Shiva, living with Shiva. And he talked about affectionate detachment, meaning you can manage to celebrate self-awareness and not identify with what your brain is bringing you, but you can still be totally in the moment, totally engaged, totally passionate, totally affectionate without identifying with it. In other words... Don't be sticky. Mm. Don't let things stick to you and don't stick to things. Right? De-stick. Simple. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, so in that to do that, every moment you have to remind yourself to do that. Because we're we're being induced to stick all the time. Either get things stuck to us or stick to things. Mm. So the, the stickier we become, basically, the more we get into patterns and repetitions. That, that then condition us and limit our belief system. Mm. You know, I, I do some work with the NFL to help keep the players healthy, given what they go through on the field. And Bill Belichick is his dear friend and, and one of the folks I advise from the New England Patriots, their local team in Boston. And they have this, the biggest sign they have on the walls in the training room says, don't let what you cannot do limit what you can do. And that's the thing is that it's so good. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's patterns of repetition and conditioning yeah. that just lead to only certain neurons and pathways and synapses firing in your brain, limiting you to one, you know, or, or just a few paths of existence that just say, I can do this and I can't, I can't do that. And I believe mm-hmm. this and I don't believe that. And as we get older, we become more set in mm-hmm. our way. Set mm-hmm. in our way means that we just keep reinforcing those same synapses, those same overworked synapses mm. and pathways over and over and over until it's just your way or the highway. 
And then you become the angry old guy who just says, yeah, you don't know anything, right? So that's what happens. The read in the Taoism terms is no longer flexible. And those kids are saying those silly old men, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, and and the read becomes rigid and stiff, and now it's so easy to break it, Uh, right? So it's easy to break down. So the key is that your brain has neuroplasticity, meaning that at every moment, your neurons are firing different, making new connections and reconfiguring themselves all the time. Your brain is never the same as long as you're just paying attention. Same thing with your genes. So we wrote about that in the super brain. The super genes, we wrote about yeah. epigenetics because is every choice you make is determining every experience you make and every experience you have is going to condition your gene expression. And habits come with programs of genes. Mm-hmm. So if you eat a lot of junk food, mm-hmm. processed foods, too much fat, sugar, too much salt, too much meat, the modern American mad diet. Yeah. I mean, if you do, what will happen is that your, this diet is inducing inflammation. It's making your tissues and cells unhappy. And your genes adapt. Your genes say, okay, turn this gene up, turn this one down. We got to deal with this guy who's eating a bunch of junk and hurting his cells and his tissues. And the genes try to compensate. <laughs> and when these genes compensate, over time, some of the things they have to do end up hurting you. Mm. Right? Because, you know, they just, the, the, the genes are responding to the situation. And if it's a negative situation, a battleground that you're creating, you're creating a constant environment of physical stress, the genes go along with that. Next thing you know, your genetic program isn't healing you every day. It's hurting you every day because those genes are just responding to how you're living your life. Now, mm. you change to a more vegetarian diet, more organic diet, and you really stick with it. Guess what? It only takes about 60 days. It's crazy. For epigenetics to just change. So epigenetics, let's talk about epigenetics is. The DNA stays the same, but you have, you have these chemicals called methyl groups, so methylation, and you have what's called acetylation. Mm-hmm. And so you actually have these chemicals sticking to the DNA or methylating it. You have chemicals sticking to the proteins that package the DNA, like big pillows, the histones. That's called acetylation. Mm -hmm. And depending on where these different chemical modifications of DNA and the proteins around it are happening, that controls the gene expression. And the gene expression is then coordinated like a program according to your habits. So spend 60 days firmly changing a habit. You will, change the, you will firmly change the gene expression program. That's epigenetic reprogramming of yourself. And now your genes are serving you and, and making you heal every day, even when you're not eating that good diet, because you reprogram them. And this is where Darwin didn't know enough. He couldn't have known. Can't mm-hmm. The fact is, mm-hmm. this gets a little tricky, but I want to explain it. So picture your DNA. This, you have four bases of DNA, A, G, C, and T. Mm-hmm. Three billion of them, but, and they're like beads on a string. And there's different segments of string or different chromosomes. And picture you get, you know, just picture you, you get a whole, you get a bunch of beads on a string in your hands right now. You get about 500 beads and you've got them in your hand, they're red, green, and blue. And you shuffle your hands around mm-hmm. and you look, and now you see a certain red or green one on top. And you shuffle again, and now a blue bead that was in the middle is on top because you shuffled it. Well, the epigenetic modifications of DNA do the same thing. As a result, 
it makes certain bases of DNA more susceptible to mutation than others. So Darwin thought the mutation could only come slowly over time. In other words, a mutation happens totally by chance. There was no conditioning of it, just a, a new change in DNA came. And let's see if it sticks, if that bird can fly better, that, that sticks, it's, it's survival of the fittest, it's slow conservation. What he didn't know is you can have changes that occur just like that based on lifestyle, based on how you're living your life. DNA can, be, can, can just be more or less susceptible to mutation in different spots based on epigenetics. Yep. So your lifestyle can affect your DNA. And you can also pass on the epigenetic modifications. And, you know, I, yeah, and I don't know if you know the, the study we talked about in supergenes about the mice. Where yeah, no. they, you know, they had, baby, they had the, 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 the mice trained to be afraid of a certain smell. Mm-hmm. So this, a group took mice and every time they smelt this certain cherry blossom odor, which was a certain chemical called an ester, the, uh, they got a small shock to their foot. So over time, the, the mice are trained that they smell that smell like, oh, no, our foot's going to get shocked. And they're yeah. afraid. Then those mice, the male mice, were trained this way. Then those mice, mice, those mice have little mice. They have babies. Mm-hmm. You know, and the baby mice, they, they, they give them the smell of the cherry blossom. This baby was just born. It has no idea what yeah. ever smelled cherry blossom before. And the, and, the, and the baby mouse smells the cherry blossom and cowers in the corner and is afraid. The baby mouse inherited the fear of the parent that was developed during life. Think about that. Yeah, it's amazing. And because the epigenetic modification was passed on in the sperm. Yeah. So we can inherit the phobias of our parents based on their lifetime of experience, not just based on the DNA itself that they're passing on. They're passing on the DNA modifications that came with their experiences and choices in their life. Exactly. And that, exactly. that is the real revolution of epigenetics. That we, mm-hmm. That's why we, we thought we had to write that. No, it's, it's, it is revolutionary. What if I told you you could get high-quality organic and non-GMO groceries delivered to your door for a lot less than you're paying now and help out families in need? That's what I'm doing since I discovered Thrive Market. As a proud Thrive Market member, I get the products I love and my paid membership provides a free one for someone in need, like a low-income family, teacher, veteran, or first responder. I love getting all my clean beauty products like makeup and skincare from Thrive because they have the best prices for the best quality products. Shopping online is fun and so easy. No stressful lines and I could shop in my PJs from my couch. And as a member, I'm saving 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices and their carbon neutral shipping is free on orders over $49. Need any more convincing? Not only do I feel great about getting a deal on my favorite clean organic products, but I also feel great about helping to support families who need it most. In addition to membership matching, Thrive Market is matching donations to their COVID-19 relief fund dollar for dollar. Try Thrive Market and become a member risk-free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. Join today and you'll get up to $20 in shopping credit towards your first order. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash drleaf to start your risk-free membership and get up to $20 towards your first order. Thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes.
I've been writing about epigenetics for years because it helps people to understand our personal responsibility. So that self-awareness brings that responsibility of, of recognizing our impact. And, you know, you said so many outstandingly brilliant things there, but it's so relevant. Just recently, when you talked about the 60 days, that really caught my attention because in my most recent clinical trial, I was I showed that over 63 days, you can you know, direct your neuroplasticity through mind management. So basically using your mind to manage your mind so that you, it's that self-awareness piece that you're talking about, but in a specific technique that I've been researching for years and so on. So it's basically mind management. And over 63 days, we saw those neuroplastic changes happening. So the automatization or habituation didn't happen at 7, 14, 21, you know, the myth of 21. It was it took at least 60 to 63 days for change to happen. And we saw, we saw those gamma peaks in the brain and all kinds of changes. But it was fascinating because it was people's self-awareness. Because I didn't work on, in this particular trial, I didn't work on food. I didn't work on diet. I wanted just to test, look at mind management. And if you make someone self-regulate and aware and from awareness, give them empowerment and control that, okay, this is the toxic issue and I can manage this and, and this is the toxic stress it's causing and, and all the kind of stuff you've been saying, you can actually help people to manage. And we saw such changes in cortisol and in just in the, de- the telomere length. And, and, and it was always at that 63-day mark. So it was just very exciting when you said 60 days, that, that that's such an important factor because people give up so quickly and don't realize that that change is happening. And I love the fact that you also said we're always changing. Our brain is always changing and that's neuroplasticity as people know. But we may as well direct that change and that's what your work does explain so beautifully. And I'm so glad you emphasize the lifestyle aspect and that's massive because one of the areas that you are so famous for is your work with Alzheimer's. And so could we just for a moment pivot to Alzheimer's and link in, you know, lifestyle and Alzheimer's and then maybe come back to lifestyle and general health because you're also big, big on the microbiome and, you know, there's just so many aspects that we can, we can, so many places we can go, but let's pivot to Alzheimer's because you are really famous for your work on that. And I'd love people to hear what you've, what you've got to say then and the lifestyle impact. Well, you know, so I, when I first started working on Alzheimer's, I discovered the first Alzheimer's genes, and those first gene mutations that we found were involved with the early onset cases that were familiar, meaning you have a parent who had the disease with onset of the disease under 50 years old. Yeah. And those gene mutations, when you inherit them, so if you have a parent with early onset familial Alzheimer's and they have a certain mutation, you have a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. But if you inherit that rare mutation, you get the disease. This lifestyle may, may, may be able to delay onset a little bit, but I'm mm-hmm. sure about that. But these are called 100% penetrant mm-hmm. gene mutations. And the good news is, as we, as you know, and I know Deepak likes to say this all the time, mm-hmm. and about it in uh, super genes, is that, is that 97% or more of the gene mutations we inherit only predispose us to Alzheimer's, or yeah. in some cases protect us. Yeah. But they're not fully penetrant, meaning your lifestyle matters. So I just you know, I testified to Congress last year about this to the subcommittee on aging with uh, Senator Collins about the fact that the US needs to be educated on the fact that yeah. whatever your family history is, you know what? 97% of that is not written in stone. Oh, that such is good news. That is an alcoholic. Piece. You're not going to be an alcoholic, but you might have to work a little hard to stay away mm-hmm. from alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, so like it, 97% of, the, of your genetics is, up, is, is amenable to your sculpting. So hopeful. Yeah. So you can, based on your lifestyle and your choices and your experiences, 
you have something to say about how your DNA and your genes express. In two or three percent of cases, you don't. Mm-hmm. And, and that means across the population. You yeah. know, I mean, it may be that you've inherited no mutations that are fully penetrant. Just across the population itself, like yeah. individual, two or three yeah. percent are fully penetrant. so hopeful. Right. So after discovering those first Alzheimer's genes that were, you know, brutal, fully penetrant, guaranteed the disease early on. And by the way, I have a, a new drug I'm developing with a colleague at the University of California, San Diego, that has the ability to reverse all of those two or three percent of mutations in Alzheimer's wow. and the disease. And That's amazing. It's been, it's been 20 years of work. It's, it's wow. Steve Wagner at UCSD and the drug we're developing and we'll, we should be getting into the first clinical trials for safety early next year Fantastic. Uh, actually reverses the effect of those mutations wow. and it will also, uh, also help Alzheimer's in general. So any Alzheimer's patient or anybody could take these to help. This would be more for something you take early on in life and keep taking preventative to come, prophylactic. more secondary prevention. So, you know, even That's there, I think, you know, it took 20 years to make the, this drug is called a gamma secretase modulator or GSM. Mm-hmm. But anyway, more of the Alzheimer's genes I found over just the last couple of decades have been of this type that predispose you, but don't guarantee the disease. Mm-hmm. And most of them are involved with inflammation. Oh, wow. Neuroinflammation, inflammation in the brain. Yeah. And what we've learned across these diseases is there's lots of different ways to trigger inflammation in the brain in different brain regions. But if you can figure out a way to keep the inflammation down, you can stave off the disease. Oof. So, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, the plaques accumulate in the brain. And those, gene, those first gene mutations we found increased the amount of what's called amyloid plaque, the sticky material outside the nerve cells that accumulates. And those plaques we now know cause the formation of other lesions inside the nerve cells called tangles, mm-hmm. and the tangles kill the nerve cells from inside. What we've learned is that you can have lots of plaques and tangles and never get the disease. Mm. We'd have called resilient brains. Why? Because some people are able to hold off from the brain undergoing inflammation. So what happens is the plaques form, that causes the tangles to form inside mm-hmm. the nerve cells. The nerve cells die. Mm-hmm. And then if enough nerve cells die, that triggers inflammation. Just like uh-huh. junk food triggers inflammation when it kills cells. And that's the big issue is the inflammation. Inflammation. So, it, so we're, we're learning that if we can stop neuroinflammation in the mm-hmm. brain, you can live with a lot of the early events of Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, even ALS, Huntington's. Wow. You, can, you, you, know, you, can, you can try to stave off these diseases by curbing the neuroinflammation. And curbing neuroinflammation, I have two companies I work with, actually three different companies I work with that are trying to do that. One company that I helped start called Amlex, we just had a successful clinical trial. The paper will be out in the New England Journal of Medicine later this summer. Fantastic. And we're talking to the FDA about approval now with drugs that actually protect the neurons against neuroinflammation. That's wonderful. And led to a significant result in the ALS trial. And wow. the company's talking to the FDA about approval now. Well, and another company is trying to prevent the neuroinflammation itself, AZ therapies. And for conflict of interest purposes, I, I'm a, a, either a founder or shareholder consultant for these companies. So I just mm-hmm. want to say that up front. Yeah. But, but, you know, and then I sat another company with a, with a colleague, Gary Vovkin, who discovered microRNAs and is a shoe in for the Nobel Prize someday. So it's not mm-hmm. whether, it's when. 
he and I started a microbiome company where we're figuring out specific strains of bacteria that can work through the yeah. gut, gut microbiome to keep the brain healthy from inflammation. But it's wonderful. What Deepak and I wrote about in the healing self was how do you, how can, what can you do while you're waiting yeah. for these drugs and things to come through? And we are making progress because now we know neuroinflammation is the is problem. Target, right. I mean, the future will be that we'll, we'll stop the early events like the protein folding events, the mm-hmm. and the tangle mm-hmm. or Parkinson, the Lewy body. We'll stop those early on and people who are 40 or 50 in, in future generations. We're working toward that. But for now, if you want to help people who unfortunately don't get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's until their brains degenerated to the point that they can't remember or they can't move right. Yeah. If, there, if you want to help them, you have to stop the fire that's burning inflammation yeah flam is in the word flam inflammation mm-hmm. i like to say in alzheimer's the plaques are like the match the tangles are like brush fires you can live with them but when neuroinflammation sets in that's the forest fire wow that's, that's good what energy. you have to put out or protect mm-hmm. against to help a patient right now mm-hmm. but all of your life if you're being mindful about your neuroplasticity staying resilient staying flexible Resilience here means not rigid, but flexible. Mm-hmm. That you know? read that you gave the example earlier. Yeah, on. yeah. I mean, we, we like to say that, you know, even when you're trying to break a habit, you know, resistance is futile, like the old Star Trek. Yeah. Or because mm-hmm. it, 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 whatever, whatever you try to resist will persist. Yeah. So we say don't resist, rewire. Every single day, be mindful of what you need to do to change and once you start changing, you change your neuroplasticity, that will then start to program in new choices. New choices lead to new experiences. Those experiences lead to new gene programming by epigenetics. And now you're on your way to help. You basically are your own self-healer. That's the exactly itself. Yeah. And so the thing is, in Alzheimer's disease, luckily, in most cases, the genes involved allow you to still do this. And, and especially try, allow you to try to stave off neuroinflammation. So and when I had to go on the book tour for The Healing Self, the last book, I had to come up with an acronym. I, I wanted, it, was, it was interesting because <laughs> it was a very hectic time because I was doing a, a, I do music on the side. And I did a record <laughs> with Joe Perry from Aerosmith and Johnny oh Depp gosh. And, and Ringo Starr's son, Zach Starkey. And we had Robin Zander from Cheap Trick singing and David Johansson. And the album Love came it. out the same week, the new album, which was, which was Joe Perry's uh, solo album, Sweet Soul Land Manifesto, which I need to producing, Jack Douglas producing. That album came out the same week as the new book with Deepak, Chopra. That's Healing amazing. Song. And I was thinking, oh my God, how am I going to manage all this plus my day job? And I was thinking, I need, a, I need a, an acronym for how to practice the healing self. Because in the healing self, we have at the end, this thing called the seven-day action plan. And I was literally in the shower and I keep this pad in the shower where you can write in water. Oh, okay. It's called uh, Aquanotes. That sounds very useful. <laughs> the, pencil, the pencil says, don't let those good ideas go down the drain. So I came up with this acronym of SHIELD. And I tweeted SHIELD out, and it went viral. And then next thing you know, I was on, you know, tonight's show. It was NBC Nightly News, or Today Show, even Dr. Oz talking about SHIELD. Wow. And SHIELD, the S stands for sleep. So... It's during deep sleep that you clear out the debris yeah. from your brain that mm-hmm. triggers neuroinflammation. Mm-hmm. So if you want to clear out that plaque and stuff, it's during deep sleep, especially around dreams, right after dreams, your brain literally breaks that stuff down 
by a garbage disposal and really and actually physically extrudes it out of the brain through the lymphatic system. So yeah. you need eight hours of sleep. And people say, do you need to get continuous sleep? No. As long as you have, an, if, even if you have a nap where you dream and go into a deep sleep, drool a little bit and wake up, that's one, round of, that's one round of cleaning the brain. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a wash cycle for the brain. So good. Mm-hmm. So you want to have as many of those cycles as you can. Try to get eight hours. H is, stands for handling stress, meaning, you know, sit on that mountaintop, detach, but with passion and affection. Don't identify with your negative feelings. Don't let negative feelings limit what you can do. Pay attention to the patterns and the loops that are trapping you and making you negative. Be, be aware of what you're being aware of at every moment. And meditate. Same thing. And, you know, Deepak and I actually did a meditation study trial with uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, who, who won the Nobel Prize for telomerase, the anti-aging. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and we showed that one week of intense meditation was enough to induce about 40% increase in, in telomerase and mm-hmm. intense meditators. And gene expression changes that, that decreased inflammation mm-hmm. as well. And decreased, uh, and each, even increased gene expression that, that promoted the export of amyloid out of the brain. So mm, that's amazing. One week of just that's, intense meditation. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So that's handling stress. I stands for interaction, and social interaction is so important. And I remind people during COVID that we use the wrong term of social distancing. It's physical distancing. Yep. You have to physically distance. If you don't have you know, to socially distance. Yeah, thanks, thanks to, to FaceTime, phone, Zoom, Facebook, whatever, social media, you can, you can you know, call your parent, call your grandparent, make sure that, that yep. they're interacting. You can stay socially interactive even mm-hmm. if you're not physically intimate. So that's I, interaction, because loneliness increases risk for Alzheimer's mm-hmm. by twofold. Not being yeah. alone. If you're alone and you like it, it's okay. But if you're alone and you out, that, 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 that's a form of stress that's bad for you. So the I in SHIELD is, in, is interaction. E stands for exercise. And exercise does everything. It's it not only good for your heart, which is good for the heart, it's good for the brain in terms of your neurovascular health and uh, avoiding stroke. But exercise also directly leads to things that are made outside the body and travel from the blood into the brain to reduce inflammation and to induce yeah. neurogenesis. Hope we, actually induce, mm-hmm. we had a paper in Science a year, a year or so ago showing that exercise induces the birth of new nerve cells in the part of the brain that's most affected in Alzheimer's, the mm-hmm. hippocampus, the short-term memory. So and important, yeah. We call this adult hippocampal neurogenesis, meaning mm-hmm. you can grow new nerve cells in, in your short-term memory. As an adult. Brain. And exercise is, there's nothing better than exercise for inducing that. Yeah. And we showed that in Alzheimer's mice, we can make them better with exercise. And we figured out what exercise does, and we mimicked it with gene therapy and, 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 and two gene therapies and two drugs. And, and then we said, okay, now we're trying to find supplements that will, that will achieve the same goals as exercise. And we're getting mm-hmm. close to that as well. So things you could safely buy even over the counter. Which we're, and of course, I'm very careful about recommending supplements because there's so much snake oil out there. Yeah, you've got to be so, so careful. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you know, in our lab, we are very open to studying natural products and supplements, but we want to document what they do. And so we actually yeah. found that nicotinamide riboside will induce neurogenesis in the brain. 
And I work with a company called Chromadex. Mm-hmm. That was the nicotine by riboside as a true niogen. And we're using other, other things like Peruvian cat's claw and thiamine, coffee food, yeah. to try to induce what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, yeah. BDNF. BDNF. Because when these new nerve cells are born, it's not, they won't survive unless you, you, you get, literally, it's like you got to give them fertilizer or miracle. Yeah, you got to, mm. and that's what the BDNF is. So we're figuring yeah. out ways to do that. So that's exercise is great. Exercise also reduces inflammation, also induces enzymes that get rid of the amyloid in the brain. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of yeah, stuff. It's so great. It's fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, at least 20 minutes a day, get your heart rate up 20 minutes a day. You don't have to go crazy. You know, yeah. it could be a brisk walk. It could be on a treadmill or a bike. Yeah. 20 minutes a day. Preferably a half hour if you can. Just get your blood moving. You know, makes such I, a I difference. Do, I do eighty RPM on a on a bike. You know, half hour a day. Today also did some swimming. So L in Shield is learn new things. Mm. So I tell people, look, when you're starting to go downhill, what's really happening, and there's all these reasons it's happening: inflammation, etc. The bottom line is the reason why you you're not doing as well cognitively as you get older. It's because you're losing synapses, mm. right? You have trillions of connections between nerve cells that are making up your neural network that are, def- that are based on all of your experiences. And every time you learn something new, not play a brain game, but, yeah, but learn, learn something, something, yeah. Right? You're making a new synapse. And all learning is based on association with what you already knew. Mm-hmm. The new synapse is connecting to the old synapses. And you're reinforcing those and you're building new neural networks to remember things. So mm. it's whenever you learn something new, you're also reinforcing what you already knew and figuring out a new way to get there. So you're, you're building redundancy and strengthening that ne- the neural mm. network you have by learning new things. So I tell people, when you're going to think about retirement, don't just think about financial reserve. Think about synaptic yeah. reserve. Yeah, very important. The more synapses you have, the more you can lose before you lose it. They literally, synapses are just as part of resilience against those plaques and tangles as is reducing the inflammation. So reduce the inflammation, and the inflammation kills synapses, so build up more all the time, learn new things. So if your listeners are learning something new right now, yeah. we're helping them. It's reducing if inflammation. Them, if, but if we're putting them to sleep, we're also helping them. Right? <laughs> yeah, they're having a nap. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, they can have a nap afterwards, so they can get two bend, double be- double benefit. <laughs> yeah, after they're all overloaded with this information. Yeah, and yeah. finally, D is diet. We talked about the microbiome. Yeah, diet, yeah. Mediterranean diet. You look up what's called the mind diet. More veggies, fruit, seeds. All these things, cruciferous vegetables, mm-hmm. less red meat. I'm, I'm personally a vegetarian, so I don't, I don't eat fish either. But fish is kind of filthy right now with all the heavy metals in the ocean. So. Yeah, yeah. But all of these vegetarian and plant-based diet provides the fiber that those bacteria in your gut love. So if you have a choice between taking a probiotic or eating a probiotic food, that's good for you. But prebiotics, meaning the fiber that the, mm. those bacteria like to eat, is way more important. So more important, yeah. So you want to keep your gut microbiome happy with a good plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. It does help to add useful probiotic bacteria. In fact, the company I started with Gary Rufkin, Marvel Biome, as it's called, is basically looking for specific strains of bacteria that through the gut can help the brain. And mm. almost like using strains of bacteria like drugs, but you only have to, but they're safe and you just, you know, you, yeah. you, you, directly, you just eat them. 
But in the meantime, if you just want to keep your natural bacteria that are there to protect you happy, fiber, seeds, plants, veggies, etc., are all very good for you. So that's shield. As you may know, every year I host an end-of-the-year mental health summit. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm excited to announce we will be making this a virtual summit December 3rd through 6th. So, if you've always wanted to attend but couldn't due to flights or other commitments, now is the time. In this summit, you will learn simple, practical and scientific strategies to help you clean up your mental mess and live your healthiest and happiest life. This summit will also include guest speakers such as Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Will Cole, Dr. Nicola Perra, Dr. Henry Cloud and celebrity Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child. We will have sessions on how to overcome trauma, what to eat and do for optimal brain health, how to deal with toxic words and people, how to set boundaries, how to use my five steps to detox your brain, and so much more. We will also be offering CMEs and CEUs. Registration is now open and we are offering a special early bird discount just till October 15. Your registration includes access to all sessions, discounts on online products, recordings of all sessions after the event and special downloads and workbooks. Register now at drleafconference.com. The link and more details will be in the show notes. I get so excited because just one of the other things that I, you talked about, the telomeres lengthening and changes happening so quickly, we found with our most recent clinical trials as well, that just giving people that self-awareness, mind management, learning to manage those elements in your in your life in terms of stress, toxic thoughts, etc. We also saw telomeres changing significantly in as short as nine weeks. And even three weeks, we were seeing changes and then significant changes. We saw inflammation reducing. We saw homocysteine levels drop significantly, cortisol levels drop significantly. And that was, wasn't even totally concentrated on the, on the diet element. It was more just the mind management. So if you add all the other factors in, you've got, I mean, this mind brain, there is so much evidence that when we get our mind under control when we recognize the power of our mind to use our mind to change our brain our whole body benefits and it's just kind of steering people in the face but a lot of people still don't recognize that but fortunately the work that you're doing you know the work that I'm doing the work that all of us are doing is hoping to starting to change this and give people more hope because it's been kind of a 30 years or 50 years of you are your brain and you know mental illness controls you you are your genes you are your your genes yeah all these myths and they yeah say and your brain can't change it is exactly, exactly, exactly. So your, your your books and your it is it's total BS, and you shifting that and changing that, and they can't argue with the science, which is deeply spiritual. <laughs> so you know it's the whole package. And, and, come- and you know the thing is, you talk about controlling your mind, and the way I like to say it, I think about the brain and the mind as a small child. I love that. I use that analogy too. I think it's it's the easiest way to explain it. And and it's like and it's like a, and, and if you try to control the child. Again, the resistance leads to persistence. Yeah. Right? They're going yeah. To be the mind and the brain is a, is a petulant little child. Okay? Yeah. So what you do is, is instead you just take the time to observe what that little child, your brain and mind, is doing. Step back like the responsible parent or guardian and say, what are you doing? Observe it and then work with it. And work Don't with it. Resist, rewire, train, rewire, right? And so instead of controlling, which is difficult, you're just simply observing. The key term here, going back to your quantum physics statement earlier, is yeah. observe, observation. Sit, sit on that, you know, Deva from Kauai, Hindu Masa used the term mountaintop consciousness. 
mean, you sit on the mountaintop and you look at what's my brain doing now? And what's my stomach doing now? My stomach says it's hungry. My brain's bringing me a feeling of what? Oh, there's a mosquito on my leg. Okay. My brain let me feel that. That's important. Yeah. So always be the observer of, of not exactly. just what your, your stomach and your lungs and your other organs are doing, but the organ in your head. Exactly. The important one called the brain. If you observe it and watch it, guess what? It will behave. Exactly. It behaves. I like that. Kids mm-hmm. behave when they're observed. Well, exactly. <laughs> but more <laughs> to, likely. To a certain extent, yeah. More uh, likely to, yeah. But if they're not being observed, man, they go nuts. Exactly. So you got to observe and be aware of being aware the whole time. And then things kind of fall into order. You know what else it does when you are observing what your brain is doing as you, the, the being that's using your brain, mm-hmm. you're also creating new connectivity in your brain. Mm-hmm. As if you're sitting back observing an instinctual need to eat more, have that like another piece of pizza, right? And you're observing that, that reptilian instinctive brain just telling you react and fight. Yeah. Be afraid. Or whatever else the brainstem, reptilian brain wants to do at the instinctive level. By observing that, you're allowing one part of the brain more toward the more evolved, newer part of the brain and yeah. cortex to observe what that really old part of the brain is doing. I mean, remember that that reptilian brain in the back is 300 million years old. It's 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 the veteran in the locker room. Yeah. It gets its way. <laughs> Poor little frontal cortex where there's reason and and intuition and creativity and, and self-awareness, it's only 4 million years old. It's the total rookie in the locker room. The 300 million year old brainstem just whacks it around. But if, if the rookie sits back and just looks at what that big gorilla is doing and observes it, just that act of connection between the, the old part of the brain and the new part of the brain, the instinctive brain, with the more intellectual, creative, intuitive brain, just that alone allows the brain to behave and function higher. I mean, really, high, you know, if you think about Michelangelo and Da Vinci, and yeah. thought, what they had wasn't more brain activity. They had more brain connectivity. Yeah. They That's had it. the drive. I call it the 3D brain, the drive of the brainstem and reptilian brain, the old brain, the instinctive brain, the drive. Then there's the desire of the midbrain, right? You know, from when you're a baby, things that are good, you desire. Things that are bad, you fear. Fear and desire are the roots of all emotion. Memory of punishment creates fear. Memory of pleasure creates desire. Those are the first memories you have. As a baby. Yeah. And that's the, that's the middle, that's the part of the brain that where we also have short-term memory. So that's the desire. The drive is the instinct. But the front of the brain, the frontal cortex that makes us so special with self-awareness, creativity, and, and intuition to transcend instinct, transcend even logic, that's the dream. That's the mm. dream. So when you connect the old brain, the hind brain, the mid brain, and the front brain, you're connecting drive, desire, and dream. And now you can be Michelangelo. You can be. Mm. I agree with you. I, I, I agree. Years ago, I developed a theory on the mind, or the, and that's what I've triggered all my research on and all my clinical. I used to practice clinically. I did for 25 years. And one of the first things I would do was teach people how to connect the conscious and the non-conscious. But through, funnily enough, mind, I call it brain building, so learning. And to, 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 to and then from there, once they were learning, not just, as you say, any old random thing, but actually really understanding, getting to that. That's why I like 
I asked you the first question about understanding because it's so vital. And I found with my patients that were very traumatized and or whatever it was that they, I worked with Alzheimer's too and, and brain damage and, and CTE and whatever. And I would do brain building first and then I would work into that built up a level of resilience and a level of self-regulation, then I would work into the whole stand back and observe your own thinking. So when you talk about that, I developed a term called multiple perspective advantage, MPA, that you get into your MPA, which is what you're describing. You get a multiple perspective advantage, which stops you being reactive and turns you into being more proactive. And then you see the changes in the ships and then you see the all the wonderful benefits. So, oh my gosh, everything you're saying is just outstanding. And we like to say, thank you, thank you, and you, you as well. And I, I, we like to say, don't be reactive, be responsive. Yes, the word love respons- it. The word responsible love and the word responsive come from the same root. So rather than to react is to just let your brainstem drive you around. It's, yeah. It's, you said before, it's being in that ship and you're not the captain. Yeah. Right? You're, just, just, you're just taking, the, the brainstem is just like a ship and it's just going to throw you onto any bank at once. Exactly. Right? So, you know, if, if you're, if you're not reacting, but you're responding, so, now you're then, being responsible, mm. you're being mindful, you observe what's going on, mm. you're not identifying with exactly. negative emotions, you're remembering that your brain is just bringing you that negative emotion, mm-hmm. and now you can be proactive because you're responding rather than reacting. I love that. That's what I found with my patients and the subjects in my clinical trial. When we talked to them in the narrative, they said they're still feeling the depression or whatever, but there was an 81% increase in the ability to be empowered to self-regulate. So they now knew where that was. They didn't feel like a ship in the midst of the ocean. They felt like, okay, this is an issue. I know what the root cause is. I have a way of managing it. So they didn't feel so buffeted by the, the winds of, of whatever. There was a level of I'm empowered. I can I can drive my response. I'm not driven. I can drive. And that empowerment really is, it shifts how people function. And we saw, I mean, you know this as well. I mean, we just see massive changes in the brain from the high beta balancing and the gamma and the learning. I mean, just it's such a total coherence that occurred when they felt in control. And our control group, the opposite, the ones that we made, they, they became very aware through all the, all the protocols we used to evaluate, um, you know, the, the, the baseline protocols that, and that, that we did throughout the study, but they didn't get any level of mind management and their brains I mean they their non-conscious mind there was reflected in their brain and it was just literally we called it a red brain there was just so much it was like a, a tsunami in their brain of activity and you can't be then you totally react there's no responding that's happening there's just a, a total limb brain. the tsunami is just being in the ship around there's no captain there's no so captain the, the, mm. so the, fir- the first step is learning to be a captain, the first step is I to like that. that you have to step into the helm and be the captain. I like that. The second step mm. is to learn how to be a captain. Exactly. Because any good captain would tell you, if you think you know the sea and can control it, it will You've got a problem. Power. Yeah. So you have to, so once you get into, once you take the first step of getting into the helm and saying, I'm going to steer my own ship, mm-hmm. then you have to realize that that ocean is not something you can control. You just have to adapt with it, kind of like the read in the wind. Mm. You have to read the waves, read the currents. It's always changing. Always be mindful of what that ocean is doing as you're stepping back, controlling the ship. But sometimes the ship is going to do what it wants because currents come in you can't control. Exactly. All you can do is just be as responsible as you can to get to, to steer that ship safely and take care of it. Mm, and that's the message that is not being told in the current neuroreductionistic biomedical model era we're living in. It's the do- unfortunately the dominant message is you're not you're your brain, you're your gene, and all that we spoke about, and the, the level of control that we not control. Let's get away from the word from control, but empowerment or ability to self-regulate, to learn how to adapt with all the changes. That's the message that we need to be teaching our kids from young. Adaptation. 
Yeah, we need to teach that and, and that we can do that. And that requires getting in touch with our spiritual wisdom and getting connecting the dots and seeing science and spirituality together. So do you have- Getting out of your brain. Getting out of your brain, exactly. Stop getting your, stuck your, your in- brain, Your brain is just programmed to make sure you survive and create new beings that are going to survive. Exactly. It's that's, like- that's, 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 that's the 300 million- year old pine brain. I love that. I love that. Survive long enough, know when to fight, know when to run away, get enough food to live and procreate. Uh, and, yeah. and that's, 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 that's the, the bully in the locker room. The that's the bully in the locker room. room. Okay. That, but you got these rookies who came in saying, but I want to dream. I want to be creative. I want to use my intuition. I want to know more. And that's such a young evolutionary, young part of the brain. It's going to get swatted around. So how do you use it? Well, you, 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 you step back and you say, okay, brain, you're all mine. Let's see what we're going to do today. Love that. Now, all of a sudden, you get this instinctive urge to go stuff your face and like, nope, 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 not right now. We're not going to do that right now. You know, and you, 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 you rewire by just observing. So good. Not trying to, you don't go inside of the machine and try to control it. It will control you. You step out of the machine, and look you down control. at it, mm. and, and, and from above, rewire it. I love it. It's so good. It's like Christopher Fuchs, who's that, I'm sure you're aware, the cubism guy, the quantum physicist, and he talks about quantum physics being the science of thought. And he talks about how the wave is not the external probabilities, but it's the internal probabilities. And you talk a lot about creating, how we're creating our realities, how you saw the tree example. And he also explains about the, the, the probability wave is not all the probabilities out there, it's the probabilities in here. And it's about you in the world. You know, So it's just a, it's another way of looking. It's kind of what you've been saying. It's just so. It, so your cubism really aligns with with the philosophy that you've been explaining, and so there's a, there's the science. I mean, ways there's of so many different it. ways to say it, and nothing yeah. I'm saying is nothing I'm saying is new or original. Nothing. It's just a matter of of a, a different way to, to 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 make a model of it and think about it and utilize it. But you say it so well, and you say it so simplistically that we can understand it. And also, you have very hardcore science to back it up, which is what's so brilliant about your work. Now, you've written so many books. You've done so much work. I have a million more questions, but I'm respectful of your time because I know you have multiple interviews. I would love to invite you back again to continue this discussion because it's been wonderful. And I feel like I, there's so much more that we could learn from you. So I just wanted to ask you if that would, first of all, where can people get hold of you and get hold of your books? Because we'll put that all in the show notes and then we'll have to set up another time to have you back again. So the books I wrote with Deepak Chopra are Super Brain, Super Genes, and Healing Self, we've referred to them a lot. Fantastic books, yeah. Discussion. Thank you. I'm probably going to write a new book on this idea of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I think I, you know, I talked to Deepak about maybe one more book that would be a little bit more metaphysical about, I mean, this gets you know, out there about the, the dichotomy between an actual world that's physical, yeah. where you don't know where it really came from. You think about a physical world and physical trinkets floating around in this house we call the universe, and you say, where did that come from? And did it really come from anywhere? Or, is it, or does it exist only in consciousness? Mm-hmm. So more of a philosophical, metaphysical book about that concept, I think, is also... Love it. Amazing, fantastic. So people can find your books wherever books are sold and they can find out about you. You've got a lot of great YouTube videos as well where people can learn more about your work and where you explain these concepts and things as well, which is fantastic. Yeah, the YouTube videos range from hardcore science ones to more philosophical discussions with Deepak. I did one for exponential medicine last year that is really more at, at, at this level of, of discussion. 
talking about Alzheimer's and what it is, but also talking about shield and mind and brain and that one kind of skirts both sides of science and spirituality. I probably recommend it. Exponential Medicine 2019. Okay, Exponential. Actually, that's, actually, I have watched that one. Yeah, no, that's actually, I agree with you. That's a really a good one to to look at. So that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Tenzi. You've been incredible as just outstanding information. And I hope we can have another conversation sometime. And thank you for your Yeah, I'd love to come back and, and speak more. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. It's a, it is a lot of fun. You have such a great, in, it's inspiring view of life and very hopeful, which is what we need in this day and age. And I'd love to talk to people that, Talk that you just with your philosophy and the way that you approach life is just it's beautiful. So and your science is fantastic and all the great work you're doing. Thank you. Please continue. We need your research. It's absolutely amazing. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words, and I've really enjoyed our discussion. So thank you so much. Look forward to doing it again. Fantastic. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.